Dear Father, we are so thankful for this record of future events that you gave to your disciples. We are thankful that we have it recorded for us, that we might learn from it, and we might know your plan for the future. We thank you that we can trust what you have said about the future, because those things which you have said prophetically before have all come to pass, and your word is perfectly faithful. So we pray that we can come to a clear understanding of what this passage says, that we can apply it to our daily lives, and that it can increase our hope of your soon return. We pray these things in the name of the Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. All right, we deal with Christ's longest prophetic discourse this evening. In fact, this will conclude his prophetic, uh, his prophetic purpose on this earth. He came as a prophet. He is currently reigning as a priest, and he will return as the king. So this great prophecy of Jesus Christ ends his prophetic ministry just two days before he goes to the cross and will begin his priestly ministry. This is also the final section in the preparation for the death of the king. These are some of the last words that he has to say to Israel as a whole. From this point forward, his position is going from a teacher to a sacrifice. The context for this prophetic passage is going to be very important. It starts with the setting. They are in the temple. In fact, they have just finished listening to Jesus Christ rebuke the Pharisees, deriding them for their leading Israel astray. He gave the seven woes to these Pharisees, and then he gave them a warning that the temple and the city would be destroyed and that he would not return until they welcomed him back as the Messiah. And so we see that once this ended, they left the temple. He was going out of the temple, and when they went out, the disciples are looking at the temple, which by this time was complete, but the temple compound was not yet complete. Herod had begun rebuilding it about 50 years prior to this in B.C. 20. The temple itself was quickly finished, and then the temple compounds were not finished until A.D. 64, just six years before it was destroyed. Now, the temple was incredibly beautiful. Although it was built by Herod, whom the rabbis despised, even the rabbis agreed that this was the most beautiful thing on earth. In fact, when Herod tried to cover it in gold, they refused. They said no, because it would take away from its natural beauty. The stones were white and gold, and they had a blue sheen to them, which made them look like the waves on the ocean. Nothing could be more beautiful than that. And so it is only natural that as the disciples are leaving the temple with Jesus, they look at the temple and they admire its craftsmanship. But these were the last words that Jesus spoke before leaving the temple. Behold, your house is being left to you desolate. And I say to you from now on, you will not see me until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Jesus is going to build on this statement when he says, 
Do you see these great buildings? Not one stone will be left upon another which will not be torn down. He is teaching his disciples now in private more about what he said in public. This has been his theme all the way going through the gospel accounts that those who believe get more information. He is telling them now just how this is going to happen, just how their house is going to be left to them desolate. Well, now we get the sense that the disciples view these two events that Jesus is talking about as one single event. They view the destruction of the temple, which they may or may not understand at this point, but they understand that it would come in the in conjunction with the kingdom. This was their eschatological perspective. And so they asked him, when will these things be and what will be the sign when all these things are going to be fulfilled? They want to know the time and they want to know what sign will predict these events, that they are coming over the horizon quickly. Notice they are asking him in private. Notice it's four of his disciples that come up to him, Peter, James, and John, who are with him in the transfiguration, and also Andrew, the brother of Peter. This will be important later. But we see that there is a bit of confusion, and that's why the records are slightly different in Mark and Luke compared to Matthew. Mark and Luke ask the question, just as the disciples probably did, where they do not distinguish between these events. But Matthew records it more like Jesus answered it, distinguishing between the events of the destruction of the temple and the sign of his coming. All of these events are separated for us in the Gospel of Matthew. They ask him, when will these things happen? Referring to the destruction of the temple that he just told them about. And what will be the sign of your coming? And of the end of the age. Notice they are still looking for one single sign. Jesus is going to give them three signs because there are three separate events. Their questions can then be summarized. When will these things happen? Referring to the destruction of the temple. What will be the sign of your coming? And what will be the sign of the end of the age? Jesus is going to answer all three of these questions. Mark and Luke will record the answers to all three. But, Jesus, or, but Matthew will only record the answers to the last two. The first one doesn't fit his theme because the destruction of the temple has nothing to do with the bringing in of the kingdom. Matthew is teaching them what the kingdom's coming will be like. And so it does not matter what the destruction of the temple compound will be like. This moves us right into the rest of Jesus' discourse. This is the longest section of, our, uh, of what we are doing this evening. And we see that Jesus is very careful in how he answers these disciples. He recognizes their misunderstanding, and so he carefully whittles away those things which will not be signs. And so he starts with the anti-signs. Anti meaning contrary to or not. He says that these signs will not yet be the end. Now, every one of these events that he talks about will happen during the tribulation period, but they are not themselves signs of the end. Just because we see the shadows on the horizon doesn't mean they are signs themselves. 
he tells them they are going to that uh, many will come in his name saying that they are the Christ that they are the Messiah and they will mislead many they will also hear of wars and rumors of wars but they're oddly enough told not to be frightened this is something unique to Israel at this point the rest of the world should be frightened but Israel should not because Israel has a covenant with death at this point Israel will have signed a covenant with the false Messiah and Israel will dwell in peace and safety for the first few years of the global tribulation the end is not yet the time of Jacob's trouble will not yet have begun while wars are raging across the earth the wars for Israel will not yet have started those many who come in his name probably refer to the confederation of nations that will make a covenant with Israel it says here in Daniel 9:26 that the same people of the prince who is to come they will destroy the city and the sanctuary that will happen in 70 AD of those same people uh, well let me read this after the 62 weeks the messiah will be cut off and have nothing that refers to the crucifixion of Christ or the rejection of Christ rather the people of the prince who is to come will destroy the city and the sanctuary this happens next in AD 70 and its end will come with a flood and even to the end there will be war desolations are determined this gives us in a quick snapshot the prophetic calendar for Israel when we move into Daniel 9:27 we say that see that he will make a firm covenant with the many for one week this covenant is what is going to protect Israel superficially from the wars that will rage around the earth this covenant with the many will be spearheaded by one but it will not be by just one it will be with at least 10 kings we see this back in Daniel 7:24 ten kings will arise and another will arise after them he will be different from the previous ones and will subdue three kings this 10 king confederation will guarantee for a time peace in israel the end will not have yet come for them they should not yet be frightened of that end this correlates with the first of the seal judgments in revelation i looked and behold a white horse and he who sat on it had a bow and a crown was given to him and he went out conquering and to conquer this white horse this false messiah comes with the garb of the messiah riding the same animal that the messiah will come he comes claiming to be a messiah claiming to have authority and he is going to take that authority on the earth but what starts as a government of peace will quickly turn into a government of war So Jesus tells the disciples now about anti-science. Yes, I did this just to make it more difficult. Anti-science means they're not science. Anti-science mean these are the prelude to the science. These will immediately precede them. He says many will come in my name saying I Oops, this is not yet the end. but nations will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom 
and in various places there will be famines and earthquakes, but all these things are merely the beginning of birth pangs. Nation rising against nation and kingdom rising against kingdom is a Hebrew idiom for total warfare in whatever region the context depicts. Now, this does not refer to world war as we recognize it. This is not the battle of great kingdoms on the earth for control of the earth. This is warfare in every corner of every area in the context. The Hebrew idiom determines that. So this is not a world war like we saw in World War I or World War II where it's confined to one or two continents with various fronts. There will not be one place on earth you can escape from these nations rising against nations and kingdom rising against kingdom. We have to make sure that our modern definitions don't teach us how to define ancient terms. So this total global warfare will break out on the earth. And then there will be famines and earthquakes, but even this is just the beginning of birth pangs. And the birth pangs are for the birth of the kingdom. The kingdom is what will be born out of this. Once again, this parallels the seal judgments. In Revelation 6-4, we see that the second horseman is a red horse. He will take peace from the earth. Men will begin to slay one another, and a great sword has been given to him. This peaceful government will turn into a war-raging government. Next, famine will break out. Once again, we see the government dipping its hands into this, this global government. A black horse sat on it and had a pair of scales in his hand. And we see that from the four living creatures, we hear a voice that says, A quart of wheat for a denarius and three quarts of barley for a denarius. Do not damage the oil and the wine. Now, a denarius is a single day's wage, and a quart of wheat is one meal's worth of wheat. Three quarts of barley is one meal's worth of barley. In other words, you work a whole day for a single meal, for one person. These are famine rations. But notice as well, there's the command not to damage the oil or the wine. The luxuries for the higher classes will not be touched. This is controlled inflation. This is inflation created to hurt the lower classes and to benefit the upper classes. This is global corruption of the one world government of the false messiah. On the heels of that horse comes an ashen horse, whose name was Death, and he is followed closely by Hades. To him is given authority to take the life of one-fourth of the earth. He will kill with sword and with famine and with pestilence and by wild beasts of the earth. Now these first two, killing with sword and killing with famine, backtrack a bit for the seals that have just occurred. And pestilence, though it's not detailed here as one of the horsemen, we do see that this is indeed one of the birth pangs in Luke 21, 10 through 11, Luke's record of the Olivet Discourse. 
nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom, and there will be great earthquakes and in various places, plagues, famines, terrors, which are earthquakes, and great signs in the heavens. These great signs in the heavens and this earthquake will parallel with the sixth seal. The six, uh, when he broke the sixth seal, there was a great earthquake, and the sun became black as sackcloth made of hair, and the whole moon became like blood. The stars of the sky fell to the earth as a fig tree casts its unripe figs when shaken by a great wind. The sky was split apart like a scroll when it is rolled up, and every mountain and island were moved out of their places. These seal judgments recorded in Revelation 6 are the birth pangs, because the scroll sealed up with seven seals is the title deed to this earth, the kingdom of creation that God created for one man to rule on his behalf. And as he breaks these seals, the kingdom is loosed from the grip of the false messiah, of Satan, and it is returned to its rightful owner. These are the birth pangs, the pre-signs, because this is not yet the sign of the end nor the sign of Jesus coming. Now, because the sign or the uh, response that Israel is supposed to have to the sign of the end is so similar to the response that they are supposed to have to the destruction of Jerusalem, Jesus inserts his response to their first question parenthetically here. Only Luke and Mark record it. This is his answer to when will, be, when will these things happen? Speaking of the destruction of the temple. Once again, we get anti-signs, things that will come before this happens, and then we will see the destruction. As for the sequence of the events, we have to have reason to step out of chronology, and we do. Luke 21, 12 says, before all these things before everything that was described as birth pangs in Luke's gospel, something else is going to happen. This is the one and only time Jesus steps out of the chronology that he is giving in the Olivet Discourse. And before all of these things, they will lay their hands on you, persecute you, deliver you to the, uh, to the synagogues and prisons, bring you before kings and governors for my name's sake. He lists six different ways that the apostles themselves will suffer and the believers in Jesus will suffer before the destruction of the temple. But notice all of these are sufferings at the hands of fellow man. None of them are sufferings at the hand of Christ. None of them are sufferings at the hand of God. They will be rejected by their fellow Jews, cast from their synagogues. They will be rejected by the Gentiles and brought before Gentile kings on trial. All of this will give them an opportunity to preach the gospel, all of this persecution, and their gospel preaching will be successful. Jesus told them to preach the gospel to Jerusalem, to Samaria, and to the ends of the earth, and this was fulfilled. This is the gospel of, or not the gospel, this is the message of the book of Acts, is how this great commission was fulfilled. And in Colossians 1.23, we see Paul agree that this commission has been fulfilled. The hope of the gospel that you have heard, which was proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, was made a minister, it will lead to an opportunity for your testimony.
Oops. That last line shouldn't be in there. So the gospel will be preached to the whole world before the destruction of the temple in AD 70. And indeed, it was. Paul himself died about six years before the temple was destroyed. They are also promised that they do not have to prepare a defense for themselves when they are brought up on legal charges. The Holy Spirit will give to the apostles their defense. Their defenses, by and large, are recorded in the book of Acts. The Holy Spirit inspired these words because they would become part of the record of Acts and part of the record of God's word to mankind. So he says, do not come up with, for yourself with a defense. It will be divinely inspired. But worst of all, perhaps for the Jews, was the rejection and even martyrdom coming from their families. Not only would they be rejected by the Jews as a whole, but by their very own families. Very, at the hands of their very own families, they would be killed. Now this brings up a verse that, as I found in the last two weeks, is very difficult for just about every single commentator that tries to answer it. How can they be killed in one verse and yet be saved in the next? Brother will betray brother to death and father, his child and children will raise up against, rise up against parents and have them put to death. And you will be hated by all because of my name, but one who endures to the end will be saved. How are they killed in verse 12 and alive in verse 13? Or how about in Luke? You will be betrayed even by parents and brothers and relatives and friends, and they will put some of you to death, and you will be hated by all because of my name. Yet not a hair of your head will perish. By your endurance, you will gain your lives. The answer to this is these two verses don't go together. The one concludes those things which happen at the hands of man, and the next begins those things which happen at the hands of God because Jesus is about to answer the question of what is the sign of the destruction of the temple. At the hands of man, they will be persecuted even to death. Those who are alive at the time of the destruction of the temple will not be hurt by the destruction of the temple, because that is the wrath from God on Israel. A similar thing occurs in the tribulation period. And this is why Jesus has inserted this here. And so those who are faithful to the witness of Christ, who listen to Christ's warnings, believe his word, will flee from Jerusalem before the destruction of 70 AD and they will be spared. Not a hair on their head will be harmed. Luke goes right into the destruction of Jerusalem now. When you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then recognize that her desolation is near. This is the sign that these things are about to happen. This is the sign that Jerusalem is about to be destroyed. When they saw this happen, they were to flee. Because these are the days of vengeance. Vengeance from whom? Vengeance from God. For what? for the rejection of his Messiah, Jesus Christ. 
this was a divine judgment. We have a historical record of this flight. In fact, we have two records of this flight. One is a first-hand account and the other is a second-hand account. Actually, the second-hand account still, yeah, it's a second-hand account. This one from Josephus in his book on the wars of the Jews. Now, mind you, Josephus was no Christian. Josephus was not a follower of Jesus Christ. Josephus has a very foul view of those Jews who turned to Christ. In fact, he calls them here the seditious. He accuses them of siding with the Romans in cons and conspiring against their own people. Josephus writes, now it was that a horrible fear seized upon the seditious, insomuch that many of them ran out of the city as though it were to be taken immediately. But the, people up, uh, but the people upon this took courage, and where the wicked part of the city gave ground, thither did they come, in order to set open the gates and to admit Cestius as their benefactor. Josephus says that those Jews who fled Jerusalem when it was surrounded by Cestius Gallus' army actually benefited the Roman army, in taking Jerusalem. However, Cestius Gallus failed in his siege of Jerusalem. He tried to take it in AD 66 and failed miserably, miserably because he underestimated the uprising in Jerusalem against the Roman authority. So he left his supply chains unattended and they were cut off and they had to stop their siege, allowing those Christians in Israel not to be trapped by their siege, but to flee if they listened to the word of God through Jesus Christ. Another record of this, at this period, if not even earlier than this, occurred the flight of the Christian community. We see that it did not happen all at once. There was an early departure and a later departure. The early departure happened right away. The later departure happened after a bit of convincing, perhaps on the part of the author of Hebrews. The Christians left the city in consequence of a divine admonition. They were told by God to get out of the city. Well, let me tell you, they were told by God to get out of the city in Matthew 24. This was the sign, actually rather in Luke 21, this was the sign that they were given to get out of Jerusalem. And when they saw it, they were faithful and they fled. They migrated to Pella in Perea, which is part of the Decapolis, and they were undisturbed by war. Because they were faithful to the end, not one hair on their head was harmed. Yet those who were to flee at that time, they were warned that if they were pregnant or nursing babies, that the travel would be more difficult. It would be better for them to leave earlier rather than right in the nick of time. Don't waste time trusting God. Trust him right away and get out. For there will be great distress upon the land and wrath to this people. Once again, this is wrath from God, not wrath from the Roman army, which God sovereignly used to enact his will. They will fall by the edge of the sword and will be led captive into the nations and Jerusalem will be trampled underfoot by the Gentiles until the time of the Gentiles 
are fulfilled, and that shoots us back into the tribulation period when the time of the Gentiles is fulfilled. The time of the Gentiles goes back to Daniel in Babylon, where we see the kingdom being taken from Israel and given temporarily to Gentile powers. God sanctions this for a time of chastising Israel, not because the kingdom has been taken permanently from Israel, but because when it comes back to Israel, it will take the whole world. And so Jesus returns now to describing the events of the end. He has given us all of the anti-signs, the signs that will come before. And now all that's left is the sign of the end and the sign of his coming. Matthew 24, 9 begins to set the stage for what is called the midpoint of the tribulation. It says, they will deliver you to tribulation and will kill you, and you will be hated by all nations because of my name. Now the antecedent of they is not given to us here, but it agrees with the nations, the ethnos. It is the nearest antecedent, so they who will deliver Israel over to tribulation would be the nations. Those nations from whose war they were spared under the covenant of the Antichrist will no longer respect that covenant because the Antichrist himself will no longer respect that covenant. At that time, many will fall away and will betray one another and hate one another, and many false prophets will arise and will mislead many. Now, once again, this is in the context of Israel. We even have the juxtaposition here of the nations. Jesus is not speaking to a Gentile audience. He is not speaking to a church audience. He is speaking to his disciples about Jewish eschatology. And in the Jewish tribulation, many Jews themselves will fall away and betray their brothers. We see this in Zechariah 13, that many from Israel themselves will become false prophets. They will prophesy falsely. They will lead people away from Jesus, the Messiah. Zechariah 3.13, speaking of the return of Christ and how he deals with those false prophets. It says, It will come about in that day, declares the Lord of hosts, that I will cut off the names of the idols from the land. They will no longer be remembered. And I will also remove the prophets and the unclean spirit from the land. These will be dealt with harshly, and we will see how they are dealt with when we get to Matthew chapter 25. But we also see that this tribulation period for the Jews will be a time of the reoffer of the kingdom. The gospel of the kingdom, not the gospel of salvation that we have preached in the church age, the gospel of the kingdom, which was preached in the gospels. The gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all the nations. Notice, not directly to all the nations, as a testimony to the nations, and then the end will come. This gospel of the kingdom will be specifically for Israel. This last generation will have the responsibility to receive King Jesus, and they will. They will not do it without coercing, though. They will pass through the fire, as it were, and they will be converted through their tribulation. 
but Jesus will be faithful to them and make sure that they are spared. Oops. But notice, once again, the one who endures to the end will be saved. Those Jews who do not lose their physical life until the end of the tribulation will not die. They will enter into the kingdom in their mortal bodies. And now he comes to the sign of the end. When you see the abomination of desolation, which was spoken of through Daniel the prophet, standing in the holy place, let the reader understand, then those who are in Judea must flee to the mountains. Notice the similarity here between the sign of the destruction of Jerusalem and the sign of the end. When this sign occurs, they are to get out of Jerusalem. In Daniel 9.27, we see that this happens in the middle of Daniel's 70th week. Right smack dab in the middle, in fact, when the false Messiah will break his covenant with Israel, he will put a stop to the sacrifices and grain offerings in the third temple. And then on the wings of abominations will come one who makes desolate. This is the abomination of desolation where the false Messiah will enter into the temple and claim himself to be God. And then even until a complete destruction. This is part of the sign of the end. When this occurs, the end is soon on its heels. In fact, the clock starts ticking at that point. This end is decreed, and this end comes on the one who makes desolate. This will be a destruction of the false Messiah's kingdom. Once again, they are warned to get out of Jerusalem. And Jesus elaborates more on this warning. If they're on the housetop, don't go into your house to get anything. If they are in the field, don't go back to get your cloak. If you are pregnant or if you are nursing babies, essentially watch out. There is no time period here for them to come to a complete obedience. There is not going to be time for convincing. They will have to be ready the moment this happens. They are going to need watchers at the door waiting to see this happen. They are also told to pray that their flight will not be in the winter or on the Sabbath. Now on the Sabbath, public transportation in Israel would be nearly impossible. Everything shuts down. You're going to have to go on foot. You're going to have to go by car. And if this happens in the winter, then you're leaving during the rainy season heading through the wadis of Israel, you're likely to be swept up in some sort of a flood. In fact, I am one of few people who takes Revelation 12, 13, actually 12, 15 and 16, literally. But this does speak of that end when Israel is chased out of Jerusalem. When the dragon saw that he was thrown down to the earth, another event that occurs at the midpoint, he persecuted the woman, that is Israel, who gave birth to the male child, the Messiah. But the two wings of the great eagle were given to the woman so that she could fly into the wilderness to her place where she was nourished for a time and times and half a time. Plural times, single time and half a time makes three and a half times, three and a half years from the presence of the serpent. And the serpent poured water like a river out of his mouth after the woman 
so that he might cause her to be swept away with the flood. But the earth helped the woman, and the earth opened its mouth and drank up the river which the dragon poured out of his mouth. Now many look in here and see this as symbolic of some sort of military force. I oppose taking anything in Revelation symbolically unless I must. I don't think this is symbolic. I think one of the lying signs and wonders of the false messiah in the last days is going to be some power over nature, including sending the floods to chase after Israel who is fleeing Jerusalem. They will flee to the wilderness, we're told, and this is the wilderness of Edom. They will go into the sheepfold where God will gather his remnant and protect them. Sheepfold is the Hebrew word for, or the Hebrew word Basra, which is also found as a proper name. The Lord has a sacrifice in Basra and a great slaughter in the land of Edom. Basra is simply the Hebrew word for the Greek word Petra. They will be preserved in Petra. And from that midpoint forward, the false Messiah, now demonically indwelled by Satan himself, wages his campaign against the Jews, the greatest anti-Semitic holocaust in history. Jesus says, then there will be a great tribulation such as has not occurred since the beginning of the world, nor ever will. And unless those days had been cut short, no life would have been saved. But for the sake of the elect, those days will be cut short. The elect is Israel, and the cutting short is not cutting short seven years. The cutting short is the confinement to seven years. This will not be allowed to go one day beyond the ascribed amount of time. If it had, all of the earth would be destroyed, even Israel, and that cannot happen. Jesus continues, If anyone says to you, Behold, here is the Christ, or there he is, do not believe him. Once they are safe in Petra, the Antichrist, finding it impossible to harm them while they are in Petra because they are under God's protection, will try to lure them out. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and will show great signs and wonders so as to mislead, if possible, even the elect. Behold, I have told you in advance. This is a stern warning from Christ. Do not fall away from believing the words of God recorded in Scripture. Do not go chasing after man, uh, human prophets in these last days. They are trying to lead even the elect astray, because if Satan succeeds in destroying all of Israel in his foolish pride, he thinks he will be able to take the throne from God, to sit on it himself. So if they say to you, behold, he is in the wilderness. Come on, he's just outside of Petra. Do not go out. Or behold, he is in the inner rooms. Do not believe them. For just as the lightning comes from the east and flashes over to the west, so will the coming of the Son of Man be. In other words, he will be known all around the earth. When he comes, it will be impossible to miss it. We'll see that very soon when we get to the sign of his coming. This will not be a sign that 
will easily be missed. And then he says, wherever the corpse is, there the vultures will gather. In Revelation 19, 17, we see that when Christ does return to his people in Petra, he will wage a great war against the armies of the false Messiah who have arranged themselves outside of Petra trying to lure, if possible, Israel to come out to their destruction. Then I saw an angel standing in the sun, and he cried out with a loud voice, saying, To all the birds which fly in midheaven, come, assemble for the great supper of God, so that you may eat the flesh of the kings and the flesh of the commanders and the flesh of mighty men and the flesh of horses and of those who sit on them and the flesh of all men, both free men and slaves and small and great. And so for 200 miles from Petra all the way to Jerusalem, as Jesus makes his way to the Mount of Olives in his return, he will leave a trail of carnage of those who have come against Israel in Petra. And now Jesus comes to the sign of his very own return. Immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened, the moon will not give its light, the stars will fall from the sky, and the powers of heaven will be shaken. Total blackout. Every light that God gave light on the fourth day of creation will be switched off. No more light for this creation until the light from day one of creation returns. The sign of the Son of Man will appear in the sky and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn. And they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds in the sky with power and great glory. Now the use of tribes here, switching from nations, is because he is speaking of Jews. The Jews who have been scattered over the earth. They are the ones who will see him coming and mourn. Zechariah 12.10 I will pour out on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and of supplication, so that they will look on me whom they have pierced and they will mourn for him. They will mourn that they had rejected him in his first coming, that they had sent him to his death at the hands of the Romans, that they had missed all the signs that first time. And many of those who are alive at this time will not have missed the signs this time. As one mourns for an only son, they will weep bitterly over him like the bitter weeping over a firstborn. John reminds us of this in Revelation 1-7 as well. Behold, he is coming with the clouds. Every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. And all the tribes of the earth will mourn over him, so it is to be. Amen. This is the sign of his coming. This is how the world ends. Remember who it was who asked this question. Who it was who asked, what will the sign of your coming be? It was Peter, James, John, and Andrew. Three of those had been with him on the Mount of Transfiguration. Three of those had been among the some of those who would see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. In Matthew 16, 28, which was fulfilled one week later, 
at the transfiguration when they saw him in the glory that he will have in his kingdom. And so his audience has a vivid picture of what to expect for the sign of the coming of the Messiah. They know exactly what it will look like. They know what the brilliance of his light shining into the darkness of this light, where that is the only thing visible, will be the sign of the coming of the Son of Man. No one will miss it. It will be like the lightning from one side of the sky to the next. And the first thing he does when he returns is he regathers Israel. He will collect them, and he will collect them into Jerusalem. He will bring those from Petra with him up the trail of Edom, and he will gather those from around the earth back to Israel. He will send forth his angels with a great trumpet, and they will gather together his elect from the four winds, from one end of the sky to the other. As far as the sign of the Son of Man was seen, so the Jews were regathered. This was promised all the way back in Deuteronomy, when Moses warned the children of Israel that all of the blessings and the cursings would come upon them which were written in that book that they would be scattered over the face of the earth. But that would by no means be the end, because God would bring them back. So it shall be when all of these things have come upon you, the blessings and the cursings which I have set before you, and you call them to mind in all the nations where the Lord your God has banished you. This is not just a single banishment in Babylon, not a single banishment in Assyria or in Egypt, this is a global dispersion, a diaspora of the Jews, which occurred after, actually after 135 AD, but began at 70 AD. You return, and you return to the Lord your God and obey him with all your heart and soul according to all that I command you today, you and your sons. What had Moses given them? He gave them the law, and the law pointed to the Messiah. And they broke the law in the worst possible way by missing the Messiah who would fulfill the law. But when they return, when they receive the Messiah, when they fulfill the law in that way, then the Lord your God will restore you from captivity and have compassion on you and will gather you again from all the peoples where the Lord your God has scattered you. If your outcasts are at the ends of the earth, from there the Lord your God will gather you, and from there he will bring you back. And this coincides then with the redemption of Israel. Moreover, the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your descendants. He will fulfill the new covenant together with them, in them and through them to love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul so that you may live, the first and greatest commandment of the law. The Lord your God will inflict all these curses then on your enemies and on those who hate you and who persecuted you. They will be brought back immediately following their greatest persecution in history. And so Luke properly records this admonition when these things begin to take place, when you see these signs that you requested, 
straighten up, lift up your heads because your redemption is drawing near. Our last section this evening then are the illustrations that Jesus gave to describe what happens immediately after the return of Christ. Immediately after he steps foot on this earth and he regathers Israel, he begins to judge the world. And just like with the gospel, just like with all things, it is to the Jew first and then to the Gentile. In fact, he has seven illustrations for the Jews here. And he has only one which has anything to do with the Gentiles at all. And it's in reference to their treatment of Israel. First, he begins with the general features of the judgment that will come. And then he applies it to specific judgments of specific groups of people. First, we have the parable of the fig tree. This is a parable. This is not a prophecy. This is an illustration for us to learn from. And this is not the first time that something like this has occurred in the Gospels. In fact, they were chided at one point for being able to recognize signs in nature but not recognize God's word. So here we have the parable from the fig tree. When its branch has already become tender and puts forth its leaves, you know that summer is near. So you too, when you see all these things, recognize that he is near right at the door. This is a parable of the same thing that Luke just said. Now this fig tree does not itself represent Israel, but it makes this parable unmistakably Jewish. This is a Jewish parable. But what it is speaking of is not the rebirth of the nation of Israel, but of the signs that Jesus had just given them. We see in Luke that he specifically isolates here the fig tree, but says that this is a general principle of all trees. We can observe the early signs of the spring and see that the summer is coming. Signs are trustworthy in order to understand what is soon coming over the horizon. And what is soon coming over the horizon? The kingdom of God is near. In Matthew 16, the Pharisees who were in unbelief were chided because Jesus says in the morning, let's see, when it is evening, you say it will be fair weather for the sky is red. And in the morning, there will be a storm today for the sky is red and threatening. Now notice that's pretty nuanced. They got, they got that. Do you know how to discern the appearance of the sky, but you cannot discern the signs of the times? Just like the signs of the times that pointed to his first coming were strictly for the Jews, so the signs of the times are strictly for the Jews for his future appearance as well. Why? Because they are waiting for him to appear. We are waiting to be caught up to him. They can miss the coming of Christ. We cannot. If we know him, we will be caught up with him. Jesus is telling them, just like the trustworthiness of the signs in nature, so the trustworthiness of the word of God. 
This is a Cal-Wyomer statement. He is teaching them using the nature around them how to, how to apply things spiritually. And what does he say? Truly, I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. Now we've seen the phrase this generation before in the Gospel of Matthew. This generation in first century Israel was the generation that rejected Christ. That was important. That was the generation that received the first gospel of the kingdom, and they rejected it. The second time the kingdom is offered, that generation will not miss it. It may be few, it may be many, but that generation will receive Jesus the King. They will not pass away without that happening. Remember, it's for the sake of the elect that those days are cut short. The rest of the earth will have nothing to complain about, just like those who were swept away in the flood. They did not believe at the time of God's visitation. But for the sake of the elect, we also get seven more years on world history. Seven more years where the Gentiles have more opportunity to come to faith. Seven more years where we can be thankful to God for his faithfulness to Israel. We are also given the illustration of the days of Noah. We are told that the day and the hour is not known, but it will be like the coming of the son of the coming of the son of man will be just like the days of Noah. How will it be just like the days of Noah? They will be eating, drinking and marrying, in other words, going about everyday life. Now some people look at this and say how will it be possible after 7 years of tribulation for people to be going about everyday life and not know that the world is ending. Well, let me tell you, it can happen. Mankind is pretty dense. But also, we have plenty of clues from Scripture that this indeed will be the case. First, we saw the controlled inflation affected only the lower classes. The upper classes protected themselves. Those who will be eating and drinking. Those who will be going about these festivities of marriage. But another thing is, we forget the last three and a half years are specifically targeting the Jews. There will be judgments from God, but uh, the seal judgments, the trumpet judgments, those all occur before the midpoint of the tribulation. From the midpoint of the tribulation until probably the very last week, if not the very last days and hours of the tribulation period, we see no more judgments from God. The bold judgments are so intense that they can't possibly be spread over years. The first, the second, and the third judgments are complete death and destruction. The trumpet judgments kill only a third of those things affected. The bold judgments are a complete destruction. This is the coming of the end. From the midpoint of the tribulation to the very last week of the tribulation, there is silence from God. He is protecting Israel and Petra. They are incubating in their faith. They have received the gospel of the kingdom and they are making their decision and once again, it will take three years. They will come to their decision and they will receive Jesus, the Messiah. But notice those who are functioning in the economic system of the beast, eating, drinking, and marrying, they're going to miss it. They've been comforted by the worldly pleasures. We see in Revelation 17 and 18, they are caught off guard when the bold judgments of God strike, when Babylon is destroyed, 
And so, just like those in the days of Noah, until the day that Noah entered the ark, and they did not understand until the flood came and took them all away. So will the coming of the Son of Man be. Now notice as well, the reference to marriage, combined with the reference to the days of Noah, is not necessarily positive. I don't think there will be an angelic invasion at that point in future history, though there was in history past. But still, this will be a blasphemous and godless marriage, perhaps much like we see today. But even in that time, those marriages between the angels and the children, the daughters of men, God looked at that and said, my spirit will not strive with man forever. Judgment is coming. And he even said, there will be 120 years. He said this, or he told this to Noah. Noah preached faithfully and they didn't listen. They had signs, but they didn't have faith. The same thing will occur in the tribulation period. Everything will be there and present for them to believe and they will reject it. Oops. That's the controlled inflation. Revelation 18, merchants of these things who became rich from her will stand at a distance because of the fear of her torment, weeping and mourning. There will be rich and comfortable even to the end of the tribulation period. But also notice the Antichrist, he provides that no one will be able to buy or sell except the one who has the mark, either the name or the, of the beast or the number of his name. Those who receive him as Messiah will be allowed to be comfortable on this earth during his reign. But those who reject him will not be allowed to be part of his economy. And so we see then the general principle of division. Then there will be two men in a field, one will be taken and one will be left. Two women will be grinding at the mill, one will be taken and one will be left. This is in the context of the coming of the Son of Man. Not the rapture, as this is falsely applied. But notice as well the rudimentariness of their activities. Rudimentary economy. They're tilling in the fields. They're grinding at the mill. They are excluded from the Babylon system of economy. But not taking the mark of the beast doesn't save you. Taking the mark of salvation from Christ, this saves you. So even those who are exiles from the beast economy are still surgically divided on the basis of faith. One is taken in judgment. The other is left to go into the kingdom. The principle then of readiness becomes of utmost importance. Be on alert, Jesus says, for you do not know which day the Lord is coming. But be sure of this, that if the head of the house had known at what time of the night the thief was coming, he would have been on alert and would not have allowed his house to be broken into. Now, many wrongly interpret this parable because they don't like seeing Jesus as a thief. They try to make this then something else, something about apostasy. But Jesus, I guarantee you, is the thief in the night here. And just like the children of Israel in Egypt were told to prepare themselves on the Passover by painting their door with blood so that their house would not be broken into and their firstborns taken. 
so here they are to prepare themselves so that at the arrival of Christ, their household is not emptied by those who have not received him by faith, those who have not covered themselves in the blood of the Messiah. And so for this reason, you also must be ready. For the Son of Man is coming at an hour when you do not think he will. Lastly, we move to the specific application, some specific judgments for specific people groups. This will happen during a period which I refer to as Daniel's 75 days. Between the return of the Christ and the establishment of the kingdom, there is a period of judgment that will span 75 days. Daniel, in receiving the last revelation from an angel, says, I heard the man dressed in linen who was above the waters of the river as he raised his right hand and his left towards heaven and swore by him who lives forever that it would be for a time and times and half a time. Daniel had asked him how long until the end of the wonders that he had just told him. From the midpoint of the tribulation to the coming of the Son of Man, time, times, and half a time. And as soon as they finished shattering the power of the holy people, all these events would be completed. So Daniel asks, what will be the outcome of these events? What will happen because of this time, time, and half a time of judgment or of uh, wrath of Satan and then the coming of the Messiah? He says, go your way, Daniel, for these words are concealed and sealed up until the end time. He's not going to tell him everything about it, but this doesn't mean he tells him nothing. Many will be purged, purified, and refined. Judgment. But the wicked will act wickedly, and none of the wicked will understand. They won't get it. They'll be swept away in judgment. But those who have insight will understand. Then he says, from the time that the regular sacrifice is abolished, remember that was at the midpoint of the tribulation period, and the abomination of desolation is set up, there will be 1,290 days. This is not the 1,260 days that we are familiar with. This goes 30 days beyond that. To the end of those 30 days, or at the end of those 30 days, the third temple the temple of the false Messiah will be destroyed so that the millennial temple can be built. The millennial temple will be built by Christ himself. And then he says, how blessed is he who keeps waiting and attains to the 1335 days, 75 days beyond the return of Christ. 75 days of judgment will ensue where Jesus will judge those who are left alive at the end of the tribulation period. Those who believe in him will enter into the kingdom. Those who have not received him will not enter into the kingdom. We start with the doorkeepers. The doorkeepers are part of the servants, part of the servants who have been tasked with watching at the door for the return of the owner of the house for the return of the master. This does not deal with salvation. This deals with the readiness of believing Jews. He has left slaves in charge 
He leaves doorkeepers and tells them to be alert. He says, therefore, be on alert, for you do not know when the master of the house is coming, whether in the evening, at midnight, or when the rooster crows, or in the morning, in case he should come suddenly and find you asleep. What I say to you, I say to all, be on alert. The doorkeeper, just like the watchers, the prophets, have a responsibility to warn Israel. They know God's word. And they have a responsibility when they see these signs to warn others. If they miss these signs, they might perish themselves physically. But they will be held responsible if they see these signs and they do not share these with their fellow Jews to spur them on to faith. Notice this one, contrary to the others, does not have the slaves who fall asleep um, sent into outer darkness because they are not. They will enter into the kingdom, but they have not been faithful with what they have been given. If they are found asleep, then their position in the kingdom will not come with as much authority because they were not faithful with what they had. He turns, however, to the slaves, who then is the faithful and sensible slave who his master put in charge of his household to give them their food at the proper time. Blessed is that slave whom his master finds so doing when he comes. Truly I say to you that he will put him in charge of all his possessions. The faithful slave will be elevated in the kingdom. But if the evil slave says in his heart, my master is not coming for a long time and begins to beat his fellow slaves, and eat and drink with drunkards. Now guess what this parallels with? The persecution of Israel, that even some Jews will participate in, becoming false prophets. And they will eat and drink with drunkards in this future time of the beast economy. How will they be able to do this if they have aligned themselves with the enemy of God? The master of that slave will come on a day when he does not expect him and at an hour which he does not know and will cut him in pieces and assign him a place with the hypocrites and in that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. This servant who has aligned himself with Satan rather than aligning himself with God will not enter into the kingdom but he will be slain and cast into the lake of fire. Those are judgments on leaders of Israel. These are judgments on the house of Israel. The ten virgins, once again, has very erroneously been applied to the church at many times. It has nothing to do with the church at all. Many will hinge on this, these oil-filled lamps and say that's the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, which has not yet been promised. In fact, it's not promised until two days later. Jesus doesn't give his promise of the coming of the Holy Spirit until the upper room discourse, which has not yet occurred. This is not how Peter, John, and James would have understood this. The kingdom of heaven will be comparable to ten virgins who took their lamps and went out to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were foolish and five were prudent. Now notice as well, Jesus isn't coming to marry ten virgins. He's coming to marry one bride. None of these virgins are that bride. 
That bride is the church, and she has already been taken into heaven, and she is coming back to earth with the groom. Now, notice she's not mentioned anywhere in here, because this is not about the church. The bridegroom is coming, and the friends of the bridegroom, his brothers, here, his sisters, in parable, are waiting for him. This has to do with the Jewish wedding traditions. But notice that five of them are foolish and five of them are prudent. This parallels with faith and unbelief. Psalm 14 is a psalm of these last day's judgments. If you read it through, it parallels perfectly with the return of the Messiah and the judgments that will ensue. And this is where we find that the foolish has said in his heart, there is no God. The foolish at the return of Christ are those who have been present for all of the signs, have received all of the revelation, and missed it. They are corrupt and they have committed abominable deeds. There is no one who does good. Coming back to the oil-filled lamps. This is a Jewish symbol. And it goes back to Zechariah 4.12. Zechariah sees a vision from the angels. And he says, I wondered the second time and said to him, what are the two olive branches which are beside the two golden pipes, which empty the golden oil from themselves? So he answered me saying, do you not know what these are? And I said, no, my Lord. Then he said, these are the two anointed ones who, who are standing by the Lord of the whole earth. Revelation 11, 4. These are the two olive trees and the two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth. If anyone wants to harm them, fire blows out of their mouth and devours their enemies. So if anyone wants to harm them, he must be killed in this way. These are the two witnesses of God who will die at the midpoint of the tribulation period at the hands of the false Messiah. They come with the gospel of the kingdom. They come offering the oil of the gospel to Israel. Those who have filled their cups with this gospel, who have received the gospel of the kingdom, are the prudent who have prepared themselves properly by receiving the word of God. Those who do not have oil in their lamps are the foolish who heard this gospel and rejected it. When they try to get into the kingdom, they are kept out. And the bridegroom says, I never knew you. They were not believers. Now we come to the parable of the talents. This is one that Jesus is here recycling. He probably recycled a lot of his parables. They were clever parables, and it would be a shame to use them only once. But we have to consider them all in their context. This, as well as the other time he used it in Luke, they both refer to the judgments in the last days at the return of Christ. Oops. In this... Three slaves, actually he says he calls ten slaves, but he only describes three. To one he gives five talents, to another he gives two talents, and one he gives one talent, and we know the story. 
the one with five makes five more, the one with two makes two more, and the one with one buries it because he is so reverent of God. God doesn't buy it. His master answered to him and said, you wicked and lazy slave. You knew that I reap where I did not sow and gather where I scattered no seed. He'll tell him you should have put it in the bank and gathered interest. He did not handle the talents of God as he had, or uh, he did not use the talents of God. Now remember, these are Jewish illustrations, Jewish parables. This one who did not do anything with the talent he was given is called worthless and he is thrown into outer darkness in a place where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth. He is an unbeliever. And we know that because he didn't use his talent. Romans 9, 4 through 5 gives us some of the talents of Israel. Israelites to whom belong the adoption as sons and the glory of the covenants, the giving of the law, the temple service, the promises, whose are the fathers from whom is the Christ according to flesh, who is over all God blessed forever. Amen. Israel stands in a place of privilege. She has been given revelation from God, and she is to use it. She is to recognize its value, to share it, to disseminate it, and to grow it. But it didn't even produce faith in the one who had it. And so it is taken away from him. And he, like the other unbelievers in Israel, after they are gathered to the land of Israel, they are taken out of the land. I will bring you out from the peoples and gather you from the lands where you are scattered with a mighty hand and with an outstretched arm and with wrath poured out. And I will bring you into the wilderness of the peoples. And there I will enter into judgment with you face to face. I will make you pass under the rod. And I will bring you into the bond of the covenant. And I will purge from you the rebels and those who transgress against me. And I will bring them out of the land where they sojourn. But they will not enter the land of Israel. Thus you will know that I am the Lord. This corresponds as well with Zechariah 13, 8 and 9. It will come about in all the land, declares the Lord, that two parts of it will be cut off and perish. But the third will be left in it. And I will bring the third part through the fire, refine them as silver is refined, and test them as gold is tested. They will call on my name, and I will answer them, and I will say they are my people, and they will say the Lord is my God. Last of all, Jesus throws some crumbs to the dogs. His very last parable has to do with the Gentiles but only in relation to the, to the Jews. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. All the nations will be gathered before him and he will separate them from one another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. He will put the sheep on his right hand and the goats on his left. Now nations here, just like before, is the word ethnos. It is better translated Gentiles, especially in opposition or in opposition to 
Jesus' brothers, the Jews. These are not national judgments, one nation pitted against another. These are individual, or these are individual believers or unbelievers from the Gentiles. They are separated into two groups, sheep and goats. The king will say to those sheep on his right, Come, you who are blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. Gentiles will have a share in the kingdom. It is a kingdom, the kingdom of Israel, ruled by the king of Israel over all of creation. And why do they get to enter in? This one also is a challenge for interpreters. Jesus says to the righteous who ask uh, when they did any of these things, the righteous will answer him, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you something to drink? And when did we see you a stranger and invite you in or naked and clothe you? Now this is often, actually not often, thankfully, but sometimes, sadly, taught as salvation by works. It has nothing to do with that. Put this in the context of the tribulation period and it becomes quite clear. The last three and a half years will be a clear divide between the campaign of Satan against the Jews and the campaign of God to protect the Jews. Not only that, but the gospel that the nations will receive as a testimony is the gospel of the kingdom. The gospel that will be preached to them will be an Israel-centric gospel. The king of Israel is returning, and you can have a share in their kingdom. Those who come to faith during the tribulation period will not fall under the error of anti-Semitism that much of the church has fallen under. They will recognize the stakes. They will recognize the difference between doctrines of demons and doctrines of God. They will recognize that Israel must receive the king, and they will not participate in the Antichrist's campaign against them. But they will protect the Jews, recognizing their importance in the plan of God. Jesus says, or the king will answer and say to them, Truly I say to you, to the extent that you did it to one of these brothers of mine, his fellow Jews, even to the least of them you did it to me. Then he will say to those on his left, the goats, Depart from me, accursed ones, into the eternal fire which has been prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry and you gave me nothing to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger and you did not invite me in naked and you did not clothe me sick and in prison and you did not visit me. They aligned themselves with the false Messiah. They joined in his campaign against the Jews. Now notice as well, interestingly, that they are cast right into the lake of fire before the beginning of the millennial kingdom. Even Satan is only imprisoned for a thousand years and then cast into this lake of fire. It is occupied by the beast, the false messiah, and those left alive at the end of the tribulation period who had aligned themselves with the beast and the false messiah. 
these will go away into eternal punishment, Jesus says, but the righteous into eternal life. Remember, a couple of chapters ago, or a couple months ago, I guess, in the life of Christ, when he said, I have other sheep, which are not of this fold. I must bring them also, and they will hear my voice, and they will become one flock with one shepherd. These are some of those sheep. He came for the lost house of Israel. But in the end, all those who hear his voice will be brought into his fold. And so Jesus, the king who is to come, says, I am the good shepherd, and the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep, and that is how they can enter into the kingdom. Next week, we have the Messiah betrayed. Read Matthew 26, Mark 14, Luke 22, and John chapters 12 through 17. It's going to be very John-heavy. Let's pray. Dear Father, we are so thankful for this prophecy. We are thankful that you have seen fit to tell us how the world will end, how you will return, how you will establish your kingdom, and even how you will enact judgment in the 75 days between your return and the establishment of the kingdom. We praise you and we thank you and we say, Lord, come quickly. In the name of your Son, Jesus Christ, amen.